0: Today we come to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to look at Judas and the end of his earthly life, and I don't know if you believe this or not, but I certainly believe that Judas committed the most wicked crime that any man has ever committed or could possibly commit. What wonderful privileges that this man had, he spent years with Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, but yet he betrayed the only truly innocent and perfect man who has ever lived. Jesus was sinless. He didn't do any sin. He hadn't done any wrong at all. But here's someone who was close to him who betrayed him. And because Judas could not live with his guilt, he had only two choices. He could have gone to Jesus for forgiveness of his sin, despite how heinous his sin was. Jesus was willing and able to forgive him, but Judas didn't do that, did he? He could have received salvation from Jesus. Of course, Jesus is powerful enough to forgive all sins. But because he would not do that, his only option then was self-destruction. He committed suicide. By the way, it's not suicide is not the unpardonable sin. I have heard people think that way. But in this text, Matthew interrupts this, this scene. Well, some people might consider it an interruption, but of course, Scripture is inspired. Matthew's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he he, he wants us to understand what happens to Judas. The other Gospel writers don't go into the detail like, like Matthew does here, and so it, it, it's like he interrupts this portrayal of Jesus' trial to inform us that Judas has committed suicide. Now, why would he do that? Why would he? It, it's it's like a it's like a news bulletin. You ever you ever watch TV sometimes, and all of a sudden some news bulletin comes on the on the screen of the TV and says, uh, "We we interrupt this program to bring you some some live news of I don't know whatever something going on." Now, that's kind of like what's going on here. So Matthew, Matthew's purpose isn't so much to just focus on Judas. But Matthew's purpose here is primarily to show the majesty of Jesus Christ in the midst of this horrible evil. Particularly the theme that I want you to notice, well, really, from all of chapter 27 is this, that Jesus is sovereign. God is sovereign. even over evil even the greatest evil god still remains sovereign god can use even sin to accomplish his purposes by the way judas is guilty uh you read uh, the book of acts it's quite clear that judas is guilty and in fact the bible even says it would have been better if judas had not even been born so judas will suffer for all eternity the consequences of his sin But nevertheless, God was sovereign, and and despite that human responsibility, God was using that sin to accomplish His purposes. So let's read together Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought With them, that is the silver, bought with them, the potter's field is a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. That's up to the time when Matthew was writing. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I hope, as you were reading that, you just see God's providence, His hand is just all over the place here, isn't it? And another kind of like a kind of a subpoint of, of this idea of God's sovereignty that you're going to notice here is that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is going to the cross, not as a condemned criminal, but He is going to the cross as the sinless, perfect Son of God. He's a perfect, unblemished Lamb. And it had to be that way. It was was always that way. Read your Old Testament. God had declared that any sacrifice that was made for sin had to be a, a perfect, unblemished Lamb. Had to be. And we we see that this is just yet again another passage showing that Jesus is completely innocent. Now, we're not told where Judas was during the Jewish mock trials. Uh, we talked about this last week that uh, Matthew doesn't mention this, but the other Gospel writers mentioned that uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was taken to high priest Annas. Uh, there was kind of like two high priests. Uh, one that uh, they had picked was Annas, but the one the Romans had picked was Caiaphas. And so they they took him to Annas' house, and then then eventually they take him over to Caiaphas's house. And so it seems they that he's maybe followed the multitude from the Mount of Olives to you know going to Annas's house, and then over to Caiaphas's house, and so he seems to be waiting around to see what's going to happen to Jesus. Maybe even waiting in the courtyard where where Peter was. The Bible says, it gives these words here in our text, verse three, then, when. You see that, at least in my translation, that's what it says beginning of verse three. Those words, then, when, could be translated at that time. And the point that I'm trying to make is that that, that kind of seems to fit the context a little better. Uh, the point is that it had become obvious here to Judas, that the guilty verdict was confirmed on Jesus. And so now Judas saw, he's seeing this with his very own eyes. I mean, the Bible says Peter saw Jesus, so so we can assume that Judas sees Jesus, knows what's going on. So he's seeing with his own eyes that Jesus had been condemned. And so as Judas watched Jesus being carried away to Pilate, his treachery finally begins to dawn on him. I, I don't know why it didn't before, but... It's 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 he's it's like his eyes are being opened. Uh, wait a minute, this isn't quite what I expected to happen. So he's realizing the Jewish leaders intended to put Jesus to death. The one last obstacle that was that was in the way of Jesus' death was permission from the Gentile rulers, and so Pilate was the ruler of that region. He was the Roman ruler of of, of that whole region there, and so he was taken to Pilate which, by the way, again, is fulfilling Bible prophecy. Jesus said, I will be taken to the Gentiles. I will be given over to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens here. And so once Pilate consented, well, Jesus' death is just inevitable. The sight was something that was devastating to Judas. So apparently he wasn't quite expecting this. And so we know, we know it was devastating to Judas because... Some Bible translations there in verse 3 actually say that Judas felt remorse. You might be looking at a Bible translation that says that. My my ESV says that he changed his mind. He changed his mind. He was sorry. He was feeling guilt. By the way, no man could be more evil than Judas Iscariot. Just think about that. You say, why would I say that? Well, he had an a very close, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No man has ever been more exposed to God's truth than Judas has. Not even Peter, James, and John. Yet sadly, he never put his faith in Jesus Christ. He never believed that Jesus was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who had come to take away his sin. And so Judas was so totally trapped in sin that he actually became a willing instrument of Satan. And I say willing instrument of Satan because Satan cannot, he can't indwell believers. The Bible says that, in fact, in Luke chapter 22, it says Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot. Satan couldn't have done that if willing or if Judas wasn't a willing receiver and so he was a false disciple he was religious but lost and he renounced Jesus Christ clearly he had to for Satan to enter into him and it's interesting it was it was uh, just a simple matter uh for him to persuade uh to um for Satan to persuade him to betray Jesus, Judas's heart was hard. There, was, there was. By the way, it's often it, there's there's a degeneration when it comes to our sin. Just kind of steps down and down and down into degeneration. And Judas's heart had been hardened to the things of God, and 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 we see even he was hardened to the things of God. He's eventually we see him being brought into the group. Uh, we, we see him stealing. The Bible says he was a thief. He, he's stealing from the money bag as the treasure. And then eventually he just outright betrays Jesus Christ. It's interesting in John chapter 6, Jesus actually called him a devil. Jesus understood his heart. But yet Jesus continually reached out to this man whom he knew full well was going to betray him. Well, Judas's remorse, by the way was not repentance of sin, like, like uh, if, if you're looking at a KJV translation, for example, it actually uses the word repent or repentance, uh, which might be a little misleading if if you understand the biblical word repentance and what that actually means. Um, I, I prefer the word remorse or change of mind. but And you say, well, how, how do we know? How do we know that... that Judas' remorse wasn't actual true repentance or a genuine repentance. Well, one of the ways I know that is because of the Greek word that Matthew chooses to use here. Matthew didn't use the Greek word that meant a genuine change of mind, which is what repentance means. He used the word that just merely means regret or sorrow, which is why uh, several Bible translations use the word remorse. And you say, what is repentance? Well, hopefully that little visual illustration there on the screen might help. Uh, Repentance, as it says, is literally a 180-degree turn. Repentance is far more than just a, a, a mere regret and sorrow over your sin. He did not experience spiritual penitence at all. It was just an emotional remorse. That's all. Just an emotional remorse. Repentance, well, what it would have looked like if he had actually repented and truly changed his mind in regard to his sin is he would have turned to Jesus. Because, because look, there's, it's, it's a new direction. I mean, here, here's a guy who is open to the leading of Satan in his life. He, he's serving himself. He's worshiping himself, and so he's kind of, it's like kind of heading down this road here, you know, he's headed this direction. A 180 degree turn says, I forsake that direction, I forsake my sin, I turn the other way. It's a complete 180 degree turn. So in Judas's case, it would have been a rejection of his sin. And he should have turned to Jesus, but we don't see him turning to Jesus here, do we? No, there's no turning to Jesus at all. So repentance involves a full 180 degree turn. A 180 degree turn. It's a it literally, it's a turning from sin to Jesus, who's the only one who can deal with your sin. It, he is the only path to salvation. Jesus himself said so in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God the Father except through me, Jesus says. So proof that Judas's sorrow was ungodly and very selfish is seen in the fact that he makes no effort to defend Jesus. He makes uh, no effort to rescue Jesus. He leaves Jesus in the Gentiles and the Jews' hands. He had no desire to help Jesus. All he wants to do is quiet his noisy soul. Did you notice that? He just wants to quiet his noisy soul. He's burdened with guilt. It's just crushing him. He just wants to get this crushing feeling off himself. And so he attempts to do that, but he doesn't run to Jesus What does he do? He returns the 30 pieces of silver back to the priest. Uh, They're the ones who gave him the money, and so he returns it back to them. And by the way, it was there that Judas confessed that he had sinned. It's interesting, he says he's sinned, but notice he's sinned by doing what? What does he say? He's sinned by betraying innocent blood. So again, we see Jesus is completely innocent here. He doesn't stand guilty before these people. And Judas was only trying to do what many people try to do. Uh, he's, in, in a way, he's, he's a sad but true illustration of the way we are and the way many people, probably most people, are. He's trying to make atonement for his own sin. Do you see that? He's trying to make atonement for his own sin. By the way, atonement, uh, you say, what does that mean? Well, Atonement. Just break the word up into little pieces, and it means at one ment. It's where God takes His enemies and reconciles them to Himself. They then they become at one with Him. And so Judas was trying to make atonement for his own sin, which of course he could never do. And and the reason is no mere human being can do that. No human being can make atonement for their own sin, uh, which is why God, in, in way, 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 way back when he gave the law to Israel, you read your Old Testament, God provided a, a visual reminder of their sin that was pointing to the perfect Lamb of God. He, he told them, you go and make sacrifices, shed the blood of unblemished lambs. They were to do that at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, and it, they also did it in other times. They, the whole purpose of that was the blood covered their sin. It was, it was a reminder to point to Jesus, looking forward to Jesus, the one who had come, the perfect Lamb of God, who would actually take away their sin. So the only person in the entire universe that can make atonement for sin, then, is Jesus Christ. That great hymn, The Rock of Ages, gets it right. I love one of the verses in that hymn. Precious, precious verse. Here's what it, here's what it says. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. So who's the one doing the saving? Augustus' top lady understood. He's the one who wrote it. He understood. It's I cannot atone for my sin. It's only Jesus who can atone for my sin. Well, had Judas been able to remember one fault in Jesus... He may have been able to rationalize his, his, his betrayal and his treachery, but of course he, he couldn't even think of any fault in Jesus, could he? But even Judas couldn't escape confessing his innocence. Not even Judas. <laughs> and, and he was one who spent a lot of time with Jesus. He knew him inside and out. Like those Jewish religious leaders, like the Roman, Political leaders and all those false witnesses that came against Jesus, Judas couldn't find any fault in Jesus. Why? Because he's perfect. He's sinless. <laughs> You've got to bring false witnesses against Jesus to condemn him. And so, in his sovereign power, God caused his enemies to testify to Jesus' purity. So, God needed false witnesses to help Jesus go to the cross to accomplish His purpose. But at the same time, they're also confessing Jesus' purity here. <laughs> Don't you see the irony in this? It's great, isn't it? So yet, despite his confession, Judas had not changed his mind about who Jesus was or about his own need of salvation. Jesus or Judas, I should say, went to his death a condemned man he was a sinner who had never put his faith in Jesus Christ and so this brings me to an important lesson that we need to learn here's here's one of the lessons i want us to learn is that sin never brings the satisfaction it promises it never delivers on its promises like our politicians right oh man we've how many promises have we heard over the last couple months right from the politicians You know, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and this, and then If you actually added up all of their promises, it's just unaffordable. It's unaffordable. No way it can happen. And so, that's the way sin is. It it offers a lot, but doesn't deliver. You know, the Hebrew says that sin is only pleasurable for a season. Yeah, it's pleasurable, never lasts. And so instead of happiness, it brings sorrow. And instead of pleasure, it produces pain. And the only solution is God's forgiving grace. In a reply to Judas' agonized appeal, did you notice here in the text what the the priest and the elders, uh, or I should say, how how did they reply to Judas? Did you notice? Did you notice that in verse 4? Judas comes in verse 4 and he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Are these guys caring and loving and and, and sympathizing with Judas at all? I mean, these are the religious leaders of Israel, right? These are the guys who are supposed to care. What what do they say? They're kind of calloused here, aren't they? What is that to us? See to it yourself. That's what they said in verse 4. So they had no concern for Judas. And and again, there's another lesson we can learn from this story. And the lesson is this, that partners in evil are not friends. (laughs) There you go. That's the next lesson. Partners in evil are not friends. Now, you may have heard a worldly philosophy that says otherwise. Uh, I've heard it said, and I don't even know where this comes from, that uh, it's kind of common for some people to say that uh, there's honor among thieves. You ever heard that saying? "There's honor among thieves." I hear that all the time. That is far away from the truth. There is no honor among thieves, right? Evil persons don't live for other people; they live for themselves. You know, if they had a chance, they would. Uh, a lot of those, a lot of, a lot of criminals and, and sinners, you know. They'll, they'll shoot the other, their so-called friend. They'll, they'll, they'll do whatever they can. You know, they're, they're quite happy to get away from the police if it means their friend gets caught. Yeah, you know, that's the sort of stuff they do. Partners in evil are not friends. And so, here's, here's Judas. He's, he, he's receiving, you know, the, the bad end here, isn't he? And so in frustration, what does Judas do? He just defiantly threw those pieces of silver into the sanctuary. He doesn't, they're not going to take it. The priests weren't going to take it. The elders weren't going to take that silver. So here, he throws it back. And then he departs. Well, some interpreters assert that the money was cast into the temple treasury, like, like somehow Judas was making some contribution to charity. You say, do people actually say that? Yes, unfortunately, some do. Some suggest that Judas's final public act, was some kind of a gesture of charity. Well, not really. Uh, and there's many reasons why I don't think that. For one reason, the word temple here refers specifically to the inner holy place of the temple. Remember, the temple was a huge, massive complex. So, so he's throwing it into the inner sanctuary part of the temple. The, the place only priests were allowed to enter common people weren't allowed to go there, certainly not Gentiles. And, and you say, well, why is that even important to point out? Well, Judas is intentionally, I, I think he's intentional anyway, throwing the money in there. He's throwing it into a place where only the priests could go and retrieve it. Their dirty, rotten fingers got to touch the money. <laughs> Don't you love what he's doing here? And so he, he he's throwing it, he's not throwing it in there out of charity. He's throwing it in there out of spite. He wanted them to feel his guilt. And the Bible says then he goes out and he hung himself. He hung himself. And so since Judas is, was feeling massive guilt from having committed the greatest crime in human history, he may have reasoned then that, well, there's all kinds of reasoning. Uh, I might just kind of give you a few of the reasonings. Why would Judas do that? Well, one of them is, maybe he reasoned that hanging was the only escape and a fitting death for someone who betrayed innocent blood. After all, even the Old Testament says that uh, that was a capital punishment to betray innocent blood. And so we cannot know Judas' mind for sure, the Bible doesn't reveal Judas' mind exactly, but... Self-retribution seems a credible explanation for what he did, and if that is true, then he took his own life. Think of it this way: as as an act of ultimate punishment. So again, what is he doing here? In a way, it's like he's atoning for his own sin, and that's the way natural man thinks. We got to atone for our own sin. It was kind of the ultimate self-punishment. Well, I can't help but wonder if William Shakespeare has read this port part of the Bible. I don't know for sure if he was a Christian or not. But Shakespeare certainly gives a good illustration of, of guilt and what it can do to the human mind. And and he did that quite well in the uh, the play Macbeth. I don't know if you're familiar with Macbeth. Um, I worked on stage crew when I was in, uh, when I went to a Christian university. And we did Macbeth one year. And I was, I was quite captivated by Shakespeare. And in the play Macbeth, uh, Lady Macbeth continually tried to wash her hands after she and her husband, who is Macbeth, obviously, murdered Scotland's king. They murdered Scotland's king and then they blame, they blame the servants for it. But she, in the process of, of that dastardly deed, she got blood on her hands on the night of the murder and her imagination the, the guilt was just plaguing her continually plaguing her and she continually felt and and actually she thought she was continually seeing blood on her on her hands despite the fact she's continually going and washing her hands and so she saw the blood whenever whenever she looked at her hands and and in fact in the play macbeth uh, here's what she she asks an interesting question here's what she says will these hands never be clean The answer is really found in a beautiful hymn that says, What can wash away my sin? What's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the answer. (laughs) Nothing can wash away your sin but the blood of Jesus. Well, that brings me to a question I want to ask. What about death then? Because Judas goes out and hangs himself. He commits suicide. The book of Acts says that eventually, uh, apparently, the rope or tree breaks and Judas falls down on the rocks and the Bible says he breaks open. And so he had a a disgusting death. But did death relieve the guilt? Does death ever relieve guilt? And the answer is no. In fact, for anybody who tries to deal with their sin by death, what is it going to accomplish? Is it going to help? No. It's only going to make it worse. It's going to make it permanent, and it's going to make it worse. As Jesus repeatedly says in the book of Matthew and the other Gospels, hell is a place of eternal torment. Jesus said that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea is that you're going to be suffering in torment. Jesus said hell is a place of unquenchable fire. And as I was thinking about this, it's sad to think, as I was looking at the text here in Matthew 27, do you realize Judas is in those unquenchable flames of hell even today as we speak? He's still there suffering in torment. So Judas' death did not relieve his guilt. It only made it worse and made it permanent. Judas's death, by the way, think about this, is, it's a warning to all Christians. It's a warning to us all. It's possible that you can spend much time in Jesus' company. Not, not physically. Jesus isn't here. But you can spend much time in the company of Jesus' body, his, his church, the Bride of Christ. You can hear the best sermons ever preached on this earth. You can even witness miracles and still perish in your sin. It is possible to, to be religious, and lost so therefore judas's suicide is an encouragement then to do what peter did remember peter betrayed jesus he denied jesus but unlike judas peter runs to jesus because he knew jesus was the only one who could deal with his sin here's what peter says in second peter it's on the screen chapter one says therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities, he mentions them earlier, those, those virtues, those qualities, he says you will never fall. For in all, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll remind you who's writing those words besides the Holy Spirit. He's using Peter. This was the guy who was in the inner circle with Jesus. He's also the one who denied Jesus. And the one whom Jesus restored. And Peter is saying that we need to be more diligent to confirm our calling and election. Do not assume that just because you come and you spend time with God's people and you listen to sermons and you read the Bible and... You, you 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 do other good works that you're going to heaven don't assume that dangerous assumption Judas never went to heaven so we see that a guilty Judas proves an innocent Jesus but let's look at these last few verses quickly verses six through ten shows the Hypocrisy of man proves the innocence of Jesus. We have a bunch of hypocrites here. And, and they're, <laughs> they are just showing that God is sovereign and that Jesus is innocent. So again, you, you look at verse six. These chief priests, what do they do? They take these pieces of silver that Judas has thrown into this inner sanctuary of the temple and, and they declare it's not lawful to put them into the treasury of the temple, since it is blood money. <laughs> Do you see the irony there? These are the guys who betrayed Jesus. They're the ones who turned him over to Pilate, and they're declaring that Jesus is innocent. This is blood money. Well, hello, who did that? You did. You hypocrites. <laughs> they're, they're even, out of their own mouth, declaring their guilt. I love it. Well, because the chief priests were forced to take back these pieces of silver, they had to devise a way to dispose of it. They they couldn't leave it sitting on the floor. They had to do something with it. They knew it was not lawful to put that money in the temple treasury, as I just said. So what did they do? They recognized this is blood money. This, This is something they paid to Judas to betray Jesus, and so... For some hypocritical reason, they decided to honor that particular rule. But why they wanted to honor that one, I, 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 the only thing I can think of is, is it just shows God's sovereign sovereignty in the whole situation. And so by admitting it was blood money, they're actually condemning themselves. By definition, by the way, you say, what is blood money? Well, by definition, the the price of blood referred to money illegally paid and received to falsely convict a man of a crime that eventually led to his execution. And that is exactly what happens to Jesus here. So clearly this is blood money. Strangely, the chief priests had no problem with taking money out of the temple treasury to give to Judas to betray Jesus, but they got a problem with putting it back in. Do you see the irony? They had concerns about putting it back. And so in doing that, they, they're actually testifying before the entire world then that they're guilty and that Jesus is innocent. So what did the priests do with Judas's money? Well, the Bible says here, look at verse 7. They, they took counsel and bought with that money the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. That's what verse 7 says. Uh, verse 8 It calls it the field of blood. Up to Matthew's day, it was still called that. So, what did they do? They decided to use money to buy some potter's field as a burial place for the strangers. So, as a a goodwill gesture to the public. You know, know, they're, they're not all good motives here, okay? Don't think good motives. These guys are hypocrites. All right? So, we're. So so they're probably thinking, okay, we can come across as looking real good to the public. We'll go and buy, you know, and it'll look like we're being really generous here. And and in the process, they're easing their own consciences. And so they came up with this idea, we're going to go buy a field where potters have gone to collect their clay so they can make their clay pots. So it probably wasn't a very nice place. Probably got it pretty cheap. (laughs) And so perhaps the clay was... Depleted, and the field was probably available for a very cheap price. It wasn't a whole lot of money. Uh, so the religious leaders may have reasoned that uh they would use that defiled money to buy a defiled and useless field so they can go bury defiled strangers. Uh, by the way, you say strangers, what's that? Well, that was a term that it was really a euphemism that was often used for Gentiles. You know the the Jews didn't like the Gentiles very much. They were considered impure, defiled people, weren't allowed into the temple. And so they, they're buying it for them. This field may have been used to bury any traveler who had died while visiting Jerusalem. I mean, you've got to do something with a dead body. So they bought the field for that. And so Matthew explains that the potter's field here had come to be called the field of blood. Now, why, why was it called that? It's kind of obvious when you think about it. It was common knowledge it had been purchased with blood money. Again, we just see God's hand all over, all over the scriptures here, don't we? I really like that name that scripture uses here because it testifies to Jesus' innocence. It's called blood money. Remember, blood money was, was used for someone who was innocent, who eventually was executed. And so these hypocrites, what are they doing? In the process, they're acknowledging that Jesus has been falsely accused. They know that. He's been falsely condemned, falsely executed, and they're acknowledging it with their own lips. And there's a question that many people have here in verse 9, by the way. If you have a study Bible, it may talk about this, but there's a question Many people have here in verse nine because it mentions at least in my Bible it mentions the prophet Jeremiah, but if you look at cross references uh a lot of cross references go to Zechariah so why why are the cross references going to Zechariah, but Matthew mentions Jeremiah, well, you know the liberals like to use this to attack scripture there's there's always an explanation for these things, and so the fact that this particular quotation from apparently from Zechariah and not from Jeremiah uh, has caused interpreters to accuse Matthew of error. Well, I think the explanation is this: as far as I understand the reading I've done, the best I can understand it is, is that um, in the Jewish division of the Old Testament. There, you understand the Jewish division of the Old Testament. Particularly, the Old Testament is is grouped according, not um, not chronologically, but according to genre, according to its its um, its 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 groups, if you will, right? So you got the books of Moses, the books of history, poetry, and the prophets. And so, of course, Jeremiah and and Zechariah are coming in that prophet section of your Bible. And so, the Old Testament was primarily broken up into three sections. They had the law, the writings, and the prophets. In the rabbinical order of the prophetic books, Jeremiah was always listed first, always, according to the Jews. And so for that reason, the entire prophetic category was sometimes referred to as Jeremiah. So the the phrase, when, when Matthew says, spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, what he's, Saying is he's 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 using that as the equivalent of saying. Then I'm referring to those prophetic books, the prophetic books. So best I can understand, that's the explanation. In case any of you were maybe wondering uh, what's going on here in verse nine. Now, now here's the point. All right, let's not lose sight of the the big picture here and the theme as we've been trying to look at some of these trees. Here's the point. God was looking at all this. He's he's sovereign. He's he's all-knowing. And some would say that God is surprised sometimes by events that take place here on earth. Really? God was not surprised by this event or any event that's ever happened because this was the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And it even says so. Matthew recognized that. He quotes from one of the Old, the Old Testament prophets. And so in the process here, even, even in Judas' death, even in the midst of evil and sin, God's word was honored and the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified. And God's purpose was accomplished. How can, be, how can God be honored and the Lord Jesus be glorified? Well, it's because God is sovereign. God reigns supreme over all of his creation. And, and by the way, that even includes evil. Even evil. God can even use evil. And God does and is using evil to accomplish his purposes. So let's not lose sight of this, this big, powerful, in-control God as he reigns supreme over his creation. Remember the theme, that God is sovereign even over evil.